Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I'm loving my new job, although I'm still getting used to my new schedule and how to fit a little writing in every day. Fortunately, I have enough episodes in the queue that I should get that figured out before I might need to record a sorry, no episode this week episode. (laughs) Today, we continue working our way through the Bibliotheca. We are up to book three, chapter seven. And as a reminder, I'm working from the freely available Fraser translation. If you recall, the last chapter we covered was the Seven Against Thebes that we also saw as told by Aeschylus in a much earlier episode of this podcast. We left off with the end of that battle. That has left Teocles and Polynices dead, and that is where we pick up with Chapter 7. Creon decrees that none of the seven who came to march against Thebes should receive a proper burial, and he even sets guards over them to make sure his order is followed. But Antigone, one of Oedipus's daughters, still manages to steal the body of her brother Polynices and buries him. This does not go unnoticed, and she's punished by being buried alive. Much shorter than what we saw before, right? (laughs) Adrastus flees to Athens and takes sanctuary at the Altar of Mercy. The Athenians, under the command of Theseus, agrees with Adrastus that Creon's decree must be defied, and they march on Thebes, capture it, and return the bodies of the dead to their kin for proper burial. At Capaneus' funeral, his wife Evadne throws herself on the pyre and dies with him. Ten years later, the sons of the seven who fell decide that it's time to avenge their fathers. This new group of seven who plan to march against Thebes are called the Epigoni. The oracle tells them they'll be successful if Alcmaeon leads, so he joins the army, but only after he punishes his mother for convincing his father to join the initial seven in the first place. The Epigoni lay waste to the Theban countryside, and the people take shelter inside the city walls. Tiresias suggests that maybe they talk to each other? The Thebans do send a herald to the Epigoni, but then they pack up and flee the city, taking Tiresias with them. They reach a stream where Tiresias has a drink and then dies. It's unclear if the stream is the cause of his death. I mean, he's pretty old by this point. Anyway, eventually the Thebans find a new spot to settle where they build the city of Hestiaea. Once the Epigoni realize that the Thebans have fled, they loot the city and tear down the walls. And then, being good, pious men, they give some of the booty to Manto, Tiresias' daughter, to take to Delphi because they'd promised Apollo that they would. Then, Elkman learns that his mother has it in for him, so he kills her. Oh, yeah, if you thought he'd already done that, well, so did I. Anyway, some people say his brother Amph... Amphilicus helps, and some people say that he does it by himself, but whichever way it happens, he gets the same treatment as Orestes and is set mad by a fury. He roams around until he winds up in Sophus. He's purified, not sure how, there are no details on that count, and then he gets to marry Arsinoe, the daughter of Phagius, the ruler of Sophus. Remember the necklace and the robe that his mother got in exchange for convincing his father to join the original Seven Against Thebes? Well, Alcmaeon gives them to Arsinoe, but then the land goes barren and an oracle says it's Alcmaeon's fault, so he has to go to Achilles to be purified, so off he goes. Achilles performs the appropriate rites and Alcmaeon is once again purified, and then he gets to marry Caloroe, Achilles' daughter. 
even though he's already married to Arsinoe. And Arsinoe still has the necklace and the rope. And Calaroe wants them. She'll die if she can't get them. Or at least she'll dump Elkman. So Elkman goes back to Sophus and tells Fegius that the Oracle says he needs to give the necklace and robe to Delphi. So there's nothing they can do except what the Oracle says. Fegius hands the items over. But a servant catches wind that Alcman plans to give them to Calaroe and tells Fegius. Fegius is furious, so he tells his sons to take care of it. They kill Alcman. Arsinoe is appalled and tells her brothers how she feels. They do the obvious thing. They lock her up and give her to Agapinor as a slave, saying that she is the one who killed Alcman. Calaroe learns of Alcman's murder. She's also caught the eye of Zeus, so she asks Zeus to make her sons by Alcman. Yeah, that's right, apparently they had some children, to make them grow up immediately so they can go and avenge their father's death. And of course Zeus does as he's asked. Phagius sends his sons to deliver the robe and necklace to Delphi, but Alcmaon's sons catch up with them first. They kill Phagius' sons, and then, for good measure, they go to Sophus and kill Phagius and his wife. Then they run away with a little help from some Argives. They tell Calaroe what they did, and then they take the necklace and robe to Delphi, so it winds up in Delphi after all of this anyway. Then they go and colonize Acarnania. Now, if you ask Euripides when he's in a fit of madness, Alcman also has two children with Manto, Tiresias's daughter. He gives them to Creon, king of Corinth, to raise, but Tisiphone, Alcman and Manto's daughter, is so pretty that Creon's wife goes all snow-white evil queen and sells her into slavery. And Alcman is the one who buys her, not knowing that she's his daughter. And then Alcman goes back to Corinth, where he's reunited with his son, Amphilochus. And then Amphilochus sets up his own colony because that's what Apollo says he's supposed to do. And it's an odd note to stop on, but that is where the chapter ends. What stands out to me in this chapter is how women are blamed for everything. First we have Eryphile, Alcman's mother, and then we have Arsinoe. And I'm writing this at a time that reproductive justice is under severe threat in the United States, so Arsinoe in particular really stands out to me. I mean, she's crazy, right? At least if you ask her brothers. I mean, a woman who speaks her mind? Now, we can't let that happen now, can we? And this source is 2,000 years old, yet the more things change... Arsinoe is merely another in the long history of women being pronounced hysterical when they have the nerve to stand up to men. Dissertation topic, anyone? I'm sure someone has written. There are probably numerous dissertations on that topic. Anyway, so what stands out to you in this chapter? Our author mentions Euripides' version of the story, one of his plays that has been lost to time. What do you think that version might have looked like? What else stands out to you? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can also find me on Patreon, Ask Triumph Your Clio, if you feel like it. No pressure. In the next episode, we'll cover book four of Metamorphoses. Talk to you then.
You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.